Hello, Sci-Fi fans. This is Penny Johnson Gerald from The Orville, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Rose, we're going, we don't need Rose. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today. But the core of science fiction, its essence has become crucial to our salvation. Tell me how many lights you see. Yeah! Ah! Lights! So this is how liberty dies. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. I am Chrissy Raffensperger. And I am Dave Sellers. And tonight we are reviewing the pilot, or should I say pilot since it's a two-part episode, of DS9. And Miles, I understand that you brought a very special guest onto our show. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about him before we uh, talk to him directly? I would. So tonight we have someone uniquely qualified to help us in our review of the pilot for Deep Space Nine, for he served as our lead scenic artist. He's a lifelong Star Trek fan who has worked officially and unofficially for Star Trek for many years. He's an award-winning makeup artist, one of those an Academy Award for the movie Dick Tracy. On the Star Trek shows since uh, Next Generation, he has been a makeup artist, graphic designer, production illustrator, visual effects artist, and has probably worn other hats to get the job done. For Enterprise, he designed the NX-01 uh, Enterprise. Mr. Drexler, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Hey, everybody. How goes it? You left that battle for the last Oh. <laughs> oh that is, that is great. that show. I was aware of that, sir, but I, you know, I just want to, you know, we'll have to have you on again. You, the you list have a was long too long. Career. The list was too long. <laughs> yeah, you have a, a, a huge resume. It's oh, very impressive. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I look at some of my, you know, especially actor friends of mine, you know, like Barbara Luna. Her resume is like <laughs> decades. Just like, holy mackerel, where is there's no end here at all. <laughs> Yeah. She was supposed to be in our area for a convention, but sadly, uh, COVID postponed it, though. Yeah. Maybe next year. We're living in a science fiction novel, aren't we? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it certainly feels that way. So so how, how did you get into – tell us a little bit about your story. We don't want to dwell too much on it, but how did you get involved with Star Trek and maybe especially DS9? Well, I mean, are you talking about when I was 11 <laughs> or do you mean when I broke into the business? Uh, well, let's talk about the business part of that. But. Well, um, you know, I'm from New York City, and um, I got interested in uh, makeup. I mean, actually, I was interested in, in visual effects and films, period. And I used to collect magazine articles that told how to do uh, you know, like life casting or established animation. And of course, we're talking like 1977 or 8 or something like that, where there's no internet. It's so easy now because 
If you want to learn how to do a LifeCast, you just go on YouTube and type in LifeCast. And 3,000 videos that will hold your hand and walk you through it and show you what everything you need to do. Back then, it was like you're, you're, you're kind of uh, you're fumbling around in the dark. You know, you don't, you, you've got, you can't watch anybody do it. It's, and if you find an article, well, then it's just described how to do it. So uh, uh, I, I was working in an architectural supply in Manhattan and uh, telephone sales. I guess I was 23 or something. And uh, they had a Halloween party. And I, I know I had an article on how to do uh, Planet of the Apes makeup, John Chambers style. And I dug it out. And uh, fortunately, New York City and Manhattan, you've got, you've got film and television, but you also have Broadway. And so getting your supplies was easy. And I, I had never done it before. I mean, I had drawn and sketched. But uh, I, 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 now I had to do a life cast and then sculpt on the life cast the chimpanzee appliance. Anyway, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm going off the deep end here. But basically what happened was that I got hooked on makeup. Uh, I found out I could do it, found out I could sculpt, and found out that the greatest makeup artist who ever lived, a guy named Dick Smith, uh, who did The Exorcist and uh, O. Salieri and Amadeus and uh, one of the greatest character makeup artists of all time. It turns out he lives 15 miles from me. So I managed to get his telephone number, and I built up the courage to call him. And uh, that's how we became friends. And we either communicated via telephone or by snail mail, because that's all it was. And literally three months later, he asked me if I wanted to come work on a job called The Hunger. That was this like, uh, it was probably the first of the new wave, uh, nouveau vampire flicks. It was written by Willie Strieber. It had David Bowie in it. And, uh, 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 Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve. And that was my first job, and it was a six-month job, and that movie had everything in it. It had it had uh, character makeups, it had monster makeups, it had puppet heads, uh, full body suits, and that's where I got, it was like, it, my, it was my college of prosthetic knowledge. Right, you know? right. And so that was the beginning of me in the business. I, uh, I worked out of New York with Dick and uh, a guy who I became partners with, John Caglione, until we had a makeup lab in Brooklyn, and uh, Dick was feeding us little jobs. And then uh, uh, we worked on a film called The Cotton Club, where we met a costume designer named Milena Canamero, who uh, is a genius, brilliant costume designer. Uh, she, after Cotton Club, she ended up on a movie uh, uh, called Dick Tracy uh, that was being done by Warren Beatty. And it just so happened that the producer we had worked with three films before that, and both of them said, why don't you give them a try? They're not your typical, you know, there's the, there's the established Hollywood guys that are used to, you know, uh, we were hungry. You know, you're always better off hiring someone who's hungry rather than right. someone who's, you know. So, uh, long story short, we ended up getting the job when it was really against all odds that we would get it. I mean, even Dick Smith said we'd never get it. Uh, and so, that's what brought me to L.A. And that was, I guess, during the second season of Next Generation. And, of course, I was a huge, I've been a huge Star Trek fan uh, since the original show premiered in 1966. 
And it really influenced uh, who I am and what I became. Uh, I got into the business because Star Trek introduced me to how films were made. You know, I read the making of Star Trek as a kid, and that was especially then where there was nothing available. You couldn't get books on that sort of thing. I went out really hunting. Uh, and I'm like 13 years old, and I'm reading call sheets, production memos by Bob Justin. Uh, I was a big Bob Justin fan because I loved his produ- his memos in the making of Star Trek. Uh, when they started doing Next Generation, I was beside myself because I so wanted to work on that show, and I was still in New York. And uh, my partner says, well, Doug, why don't you just give Bob a call? And I'm like, I can't call Bob. Well, why can't I call him? And I just got on the phone, and I called the Paramount Switchboard, and they put me right through. Next thing I knew, I had Bob Justman on the phone. And we became friends. So, and, uh, so I had asked Bob if I could come out to visit during the uh, first season. I was there for the first production episode. And I stayed with Bob all day. You know, he, like, took me to production meetings. I spent time listening to Gene, you know, uh, uh, discussing uh, points of the production with Bob. And, and that's the first time I met Mike Westmore was doing makeup for it. And uh, we hit it off right away. Uh, and so when we came out to do Dick Tracy, I knew that Next Generation was shooting just across town. And uh, as soon as we were done with Dick Tracy, I went right over to uh, see Mike Westmore. And uh, I literally begged him to let me come work on the show. <laughs> and uh, that's how I ended up on The Next Generation. I, uh, I, I ended up being... Uh, you know, an important part of the makeup department for three years. Mike is still one of my best friends. And uh, But you see, the thing is that when you're on a show like that, and it lasts, you meet everybody. And it's so much better than a movie, because in a movie, you are with people for like three months, and that's it. You may never see them again. Like when you're on a TV show and it goes for seven years or... My run on Star Trek was almost 17 years. You get to know everybody, and everyone knows you, and it's a big family, and you look after each other. So I spent long, long hours on the Enterprise D. I mean, uh, production hours are horrendous. I mean, it'll be there until 2 in the morning. And uh, so it gave me a lot of time to be on the sets. Uh, and I studied those sets, uh, just like I studied the stuff Matt Jeffries did for the original series. And I was blown away by how beautiful they were. And that the closer you got, thanks to Mike Okuda, the closer you got, the more realistic it was. I mean, I had a lot of time to look at his engineering graphics and bridge graphics and be so impressed that they made sense. And that when you, the closer you looked at them, you're like, how someone really thought about this. Now, I knew who Mike was. And I ran into him on stage one day. uh, And I think I embarrassed him a little bit, you know, because I gushed over his work. Uh, but uh, anyway, we got to know each other, and I visited the art department. I realized the art department was really where it wanted to be. I mean, I had done makeup for like 14 years, and and uh, and I felt like I had done enough of it at that point. You know, I almost everyone I know who has a career, they do that for their entire career. They're a makeup artist for 40 years, you know, or they're a costume designer for 40 years. I I just couldn't do that because I had I was so interested in everything else. Uh, and there were so many cool things going on, you know, so um, I, uh, because of Mike, 
uh, and he had seen my work aside from makeup. Uh, actually, told me later. He says I was couldn't believe that you wanted to work in the art department. <laughs> I was saying it was the opposite for me. I was like I couldn't believe you'd let me. <laughs> but uh, so <clears throat> I started on Deep Space Nine. It was my first job uh, where I was part of the art department. And art department's awesome. I love art department. I'm back, you know, I, you know, I did art department for all of Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. Um, but uh, I, 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 and I've gone and I've done visual effects for years too. But, and, and that was a lot, a lot of fun with Gary Hutzel and Galactica. But there's something uh, really cozy about the art department. It's like a little club, you know. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm in art department now uh, on Orville. Okay. Uh, which is lots of fun. It's almost like go, going home again, you know. It's more like the Star Trek I remember than the Star Trek that I see now. Yeah. Um, <sighs> But, but, of course, Seth MacFarlane is a huge, huge fan of that era of Star Trek. Right. You know? Right. Uh, he, he was coming of age when Next Generation was on. So, that to him, that's what it looks like. Right, <clears throat> right. So, you know, Orville is a descendant of Next Generation, no doubt. Yeah, yeah really a Star Trek show in its own right, to be sure. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, Miles, so let's talk. Uh, do we want to move into DS9 here since we have limited time? Yes, I think it yeah. was good, yeah. So, uh, how did you want to take it, Miles? Do you want to just do a little a short synopsis of this show and maybe get, uh, and maybe since we have Doug here to get kind of his fluent influence in the pilot where we can see maybe his touch and some of his thoughts about the way that pilot maybe established the show? Does that sound good? Sounds like a plan. Okay, Miles, go ahead. Star Trek D Space Nine was the fourth Star Trek series and entered production in 1992. It was broadcast in its first run from January of 93 until June of 99. It was the first Star Trek series created by Rick Berman and Michael Piller rather than Gene Roddenberry. It was also the only series to air alongside another Star Trek production through its uh, entire run, airing alongside The Next Generation from 93 until 94, and then with uh, Voyager from 95 until 99. Three years after, so an intro for the show would be three years after his wife uh, died at the hands of the Borg following the Cardassian withdrawal from the planet Bajor, Commander Sisko and a new crew of Starfleet and Bajoran officers take command of an abandoned Cardassian space station and make an incredible discovery that will change the galaxy and Sisko's future. Very good. So, Doug, as you, uh, I assume, uh, since you were working with Mike, you, uh, you started with the pilot working with DS9, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a, I mean, that was a, a monster show. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was really like feats and stuff, you know. Um, this, the uh, Promenade was probably one of the largest sets. It was James Bondian in scale. It was really huge. Uh, but there were a lot of graphics that had to be done. And, uh, uh, of course, ops. Uh, I laid out ops uh, completely. Uh, the, you know, I have to admit, I, think, I, I love doing ops, but I really wanted to do starships. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the L cards, you know, interfaces. Uh, and, and fortunately when the, we got the defiant, I got to do that. But, uh, yeah, um, it was an interesting challenge to, you know, when you're doing a, um, 
an alien space station uh, and you're having to invent uh, the look of the interfaces and stuff like that, and you don't have something to draw from. You know, I mean, when you come to next generation, you know, in the last few years, we know what everything looks like. You just have to apply it. Right. But when you do Deep Space Nine, we really didn't know what Cardassia, Cardassian interfaces or architecture or the way things were. We didn't know. You know, we had to make things up as we went along. Uh, and to usually when you're doing something like that, the one thing that we di- we did know was what the uh, uh, what the station looked like. And, uh, a lot of cues were taken from the station. Uh, as far as the way the, archi- the architecture worked on the inside of the ship, obviously. And also as far as the graphics uh, go, uh, the, the sweep of the elements of the graphics are reflected in hull plating and stuff on the space station. Uh, so, you know, you look around what everybody else is doing and you draw your inspiration from that or you spin off of that, you know. I mean, when I designed the Bajoran logo, um Everything in Bajoran were like, they were like, you know, wheels within wheels. The Bajoran emblem is like a, it's an ellipse with a wheel inside and another wheel. And all of that comes from the fact that they, uh, they had the wormhole. The wormhole was, you know, a swirly, swirly thing, you know. So that, that figured into everything. And when I did interfaces, I, I had circles within circles, you know, to, to key off of, uh, the wormhole, but uh, yeah, I mean it was. I mean, I when when Mike went to Herman Zimmerman about bringing me in, Herman was like a makeup artist. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I mean, I kind of had to prove myself a little bit. Of course, that's true on almost any job that you do. You, right. you start. One of the things about working in this kind of business is you're going from department to department or show to show, and, and it's like any job. You know, where you have to prove to everybody that you're okay, you know, and that you know what you're doing. And, 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 uh, uh, and it's, it's interesting every time. Especially since you were kind of new to the art department. You'd done makeup for all those years. They could look back and see your track record in that. But with uh, designing ships and the layout and art, that was uh, kind of a, a new territory. So you did have to really kind of prove yourself. Well, I mean, I always did that stuff before I did makeup. For fun, okay. You know, um, <laughs> I, I I was a sketcher. I drew. I designed. Makeup was something that happened to me along the way. Okay. You know, uh, I didn't expect it. Makeup was totally unexpected. Uh, most of the people I know who are makeup artists wanted to be makeup artists from the time they were little kids. You know, I mean, and my my generation of uh, makeup artists, you know, grew up on Universal horror movies and. Right. Uh, stuff like that. Uh, uh, of course, anything Big Smith did, like The Exorcist, was incredible makeup. Uh, have you seen The Exorcist? I'll give you an example. Oh, yeah. yeah. In The Exorcist, there's Linda Blair with that horribly possessed little girl. And it's gruesome. You know, it's, it's creepy. But see, this is how I got interested, really interested in makeup. Um, I went to see The Exorcist. And at the time, the book was a big hit. And there was this. You know, there was so much hubbub going on about it that you were primed to go in and be terrified, you know. The church was telling you not to go. Right, right. <laughs> that meant you had to go. Yeah. But, but the thing was that there was, I, there was an amazing 
Dick Smith makeup on Linda Blair. And, uh, you know, there was another character, uh, Father Marin. He was an 86-year-old priest who performed the exorcism. And um, uh, I, a few years after the exorcist, I went to a movie and Max von Sydow was in it, and he was in his 40s. Like, wait a minute, which movie came first? How, how is that? It turned out that Dick, the Linda Blair makeup really wasn't the masterpiece makeup, although that's what everyone remembers. The amazing, most amazing makeup in the movie was Max von Sydow as Father Marin. And it turned out that von Sydow was rubber from here to here to here to here, totally. And it doesn't occur to anybody. Right. Now, a mon- monsters are great, but you know what? We don't really see monsters every day, you know? But we do know what old people look like. Right. And the fact that he could fool me like that blew my mind. Yeah. And I think that that's... I knew makeup was special. No, that makes sense. You know? makes sense. Yeah, I I really appreciate um the older makeup and what people could do with it. And now, you know, things are very, like, CGI and all this other stuff. And I don't know. It seems like it doesn't have as much spirit or soul when, I, when I'm watching things as opposed to when I'm watching something that's, that's older. That's in your head. That's in your head. You're, to- you're talking to a guy who worked through you know, makeup and models and all kinds of stuff physically. I did all that. And I've also done CG. And I've seen makeups that were done. Listen, characters in the Marvel movies, those are CG faces, you know. They're euthening people in a way that you never could do with makeup. Michael Douglas in Ant-Man as a young man? Mm-hmm. It's like incredible, right. you know. Yeah. It's, still, it's still, it's just a different brush. You know, uh, you, there are still artists behind it who are passionate about what they're doing. It's different. Okay, so you're not getting here with your makeup kit at, at 1.30 in the morning to be ready by 5. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's chemicals and, you know, I love that type of makeup too. And I love physical models as well. But I find that there's a certain, uh, pe- some people are offended by CG. And I find that often guys that I came up in the business with, you either embraced it and made it work for you, or you treated it like the enemy and that it was taking the job that you had worked so hard to, you know, and you hate it. You don't want anything to do with it. And you think it's horrible. You know, I, it's interesting. I find that there's a kind of, I don't know if it's a mortality thing where people don't want to feel like they're being uh, replaced you know it's easy to look at it that way but it doesn't make any sense to be that way I always embraced all the new technologies and I've had a fantastic time doing it you know I mean when we did Battlestar Galactica it was all computer generated and uh, that was at a time that was at a time when uh, they weren't doing CG at that uh, at, at a scale like that you right. know and we were doing it with just like 20 people Right. You go to the movies now, and it's like the visual effects credits are like, okay, where's the end of this? Right, you know? right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think sometimes that. visual effects overtake story. Uh, and, and sometimes story overtakes visual effects. Yeah, <laughs> true, <laughs> true. I had one once. I mean, it starts with the motion picture, the tail wagged the dog, you know? It was overcome by that visual effects sequence. Um. I once, I also find that I ha- will run into people who 
um, uh, kind of have it in for for CG and visual effects, just like you just did. Yeah. I had someone say to me, I saw a movie last night. Uh, it was Piranha. And they were flying Piranha that were like leaping and eating people, you know. It was it was like Sharknado almost, you know. Right. And she says to me, she blamed me. She blamed visual effects. Right. I go, well, why? And she says, because how else do you make a piranha fly? And I said, with the typewriter? You know. And I'll tell you, go back and look at some of the visual effects of movies that you love. And tell me you really want to go back to that. Well, I'm not saying that entirely. I mean, I loved, I absolutely loved the movie Avatar, which was all CG. But there was just, there's just some of them that I just like watched and I'm like, this one is just, I almost rather just have the old stuff because you people did a really shoddy crap job. Well, that's more about (laughs) I can show you lots of movies and TV shows where the physical effects and physical models are shoddy crap jobs. This is true. True. Shoddy crap job. I don't care what you do it with. You there's a lot of visual effects you haven't even noticed. Yeah, true. You don't even know they're there. You're Uh, only seeing that stuff. Something that's not a shoddy crap job is I I thought was absolutely beautiful in D Space Nine was the wormhole. I think that still holds up. Oh yeah. When I rewatched that was Gary. I think Gary Hudson. You know, I got to know Gary really well. I I met him on Next Generation. Uh, he was a visual he was a visual effects supervisor, but I really got to know him on Deep Space Nine because they were still doing physical models at the time. And Gary knew that if he ran out of budget, he could come up to the art department. And we had boxes of model parts and sewage strainers, and we'd make them a Klingon space station for free, you know. And <laughs> got to know each other, and he's he's got a great sense of humor and. You know, I'd be down at Image G, you know, adding weathering to K7, you know. Uh, and when Gary went on to Battlestar Galactica, um, he, he was trying to get me to come with him. But I was on Enterprise, you know, and I'm like, Gary, Enterprise can go for seven years. I can't just walk away. I don't know that Battlestar is going to. Anyway, in a way, fortunately for me, Enterprise was canceled because Gary called me that night. You know, I'm driving home thinking, oh, man, I'd have such a great run on this show. I'm probably I'm probably finished, you know. And I got home, and Dorothy meets me at the door, and she says, Get, there's a message from Gary. And I'm like, oh, my God. He's going to ask me to come to Battlestar Galactic. Well, he says, I heard about Enterprise. And I'm like, yeah. He says, but, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And he asked me to come to Battlestar Galactica. That's awesome. <laughs> well, the fans of Battlestar Galactica think whoever uh, yes. uh, ended Enterprise then. Yeah, so I'm yeah. sure you brought a very yeah. unique perspective. Yeah, we, we yeah. love well, Miles. Know, uh, Battlestar was... Go ahead. Battlestar was more of a descendant of Star Trek than it was of the original Battlestar. I mean, yes, it was based on the original series, but there were a lot of us, you know. It was... Me and Gary, uh, Ron Moore, right. who who was the producer and and created the you know the reimagining was a writer for years on Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, you know. So I had known him for years and years and years. So 
it was basically wanting to bring that sensibility of storytelling uh, to Battlestar Galactica and, and also get to be able to do gritty stuff where everyone doesn't get along, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love Star Trek, and I'm offended that the new Star Treks are angrier, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think Star Trek should be... You, you see, for me, I want to look at Star Trek and say, that's what we're going to be. Right. We're going to be more evolved. We're going to be more accepting. We're going to like diversity, you know, and they need to be better than me. I don't want them cursing up a storm. The fact that they don't curse shows me that they've evolved. It's a shorthand for them having become more sophisticated. Right. You know Thank I mean? you, Doug. It's, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I agree. Well, actually, I, I just watched an old clip from, from Leonard Nimoy actually talking about how I guess he almost invented the Vulcan neck pinch, which was, you know, he said to the director or producer or something that, well, I just, I just don't think that that's what Spock would do. He wouldn't come up and bang, you know, his tricorder on this person's head. I was like, this, this doesn't make any sense. This is violent. And this, so it's like, well, surely he's an alien. Maybe he knows some special trick of the human anatomy that would, incapacitate them and that's how they came up with it so that it was more civilized which some people would still say that you know it's still kind of an act of violence but having had multiple concussions in my life i would much rather have someone pinch me and i would just naturally pass out than wake up with you know semi-permanent brain damage after being hit in the head really hard right so that's great and I, I, i agree with that so much that the old star trek gives you a sense of hope and possibility you know? Yeah, I think that that's an important um, element to its recipe, its formula. And I also think that one of the things they've abandoned, which is I, I, I can't believe, it, is that one of the wonders of Star Trek, one of the fun things about it, one of the reasons why you love getting into it is because you could count on it. The show hung together until J.J. took over. Then they threw out continuity. Throwing out continuity <laughs> is destroying part of the fabric of what makes it wonderful. Who wants to go out and buy an encyclopedia if you can't count on it and they're just going to throw it out, flush it down the toilet? Thank you, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Doug. <laughs> you have a fan here. He's a he's anti-JJ verse. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know... As a fan, I find it offensive that they think the shows that I loved were shit and need to be changed, you know? They should have gone 200 years past Picard, and then they could do whatever they want. Instead of going in with that machete and chopping everything up like it wasn't done, what you loved all along really wasn't that good. Well, here, let me fix it. Right. You know? So I got a question for you. Um D Space Nine did their tone definitely did deviate from Next Generation, where we did have you know conflict with the characters and uh, the sense that they were trying to fight and preserve what they had. Where in TNG, 
it, it was they've already achieved paradise and they were exploring the galaxy but in in, in deep space nine you definitely had more more that that conflict How, what did you think i mean as far as the shifting tone when uh deep space nine uh, opened personally i thought it was going to be darker than it turned out okay. i thought it was going to be i thought it was going to be grittier um not that i didn't like what they did and i thought the show really took off just like next generation about third season you know um it really became wonderful, and people who gave up on it within the first two years missed a lot, missed something. I, I found that most people who uh, didn't like the first couple of seasons, they ended up going back and saying, "Oh my God, I had no idea that it got so the tapestry of it." You know, um, but really, Ron Moore and Ira Bear, Robert Wolf, Michael Taylor. Those guys were fans of the show. They, they were star, real Star Trek fans, you know. Um, and I mean, look when look at when we did Trials and Tribulations. Mm-hmm. Oh, such. A they let us do it. They didn't come in and say, "Oh, you can't have buttons like that," and this is archaic. It has to all be redone to bring it up to you know. No, people loved that. You have to recreate that and they'll be thrilled when they see it just like we were and and to me it's a milestone in star trek and it shows how you can keep you could keep the spirit and the wonderfulness of it it doesn't matter that's that universe that's the way it was don't don't change it um that was the trip to do we got to do the original series sets a couple of times we did them on enterprise as well Oh, that was a great episode uh, too. Yeah, but uh... and even the, the DS9, the, the storyline, e- even talking about how how this that spirit of Star Trek, that 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 sense of hope, that 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 universe that we wanted to be, like you said, better than us. And DS9 really put it into a, a, a light that we really hadn't seen before. They touched a little bit of it in Next Gen with the Borg. But what happens when that polite, civilized, advanced society is is really threatened? And how do you react to that? That episode... Yes, he did a couple of things that were questionable. He did. And In the Pale Moonlight is one of my favorite episodes right. of that. Watching him fight that battle... Do, you know, do I abandon my principles to save them, to save everything overall? It is such a a a great a, a, a great look into the human condition, and, and the best part about it, it happened pre nine eleven, where we actually got to start walking through that story. What three years, four years later, after that. How do we save ourselves without destroying what we are? And that was one of the most marvelous things that I think came out of that DS9 storyline and, and that whole show. It, it took that different light and just shown it like a JJ lens flare from a different angle, but a lot better. <laughs> well, that, that's something that I, I really love about science fiction is that it takes questions that we are going to at some point struggle with as a society, as a people, and 
start to examine how, how to answer those questions and what actions could be taken to have, to have better outcomes. And it may explore what happened after, like in a post-apocalypse sort of thing, which... You mean, Fingers like, crossed, you mean like we're living through right now? But, yeah. um, how we responded to it, maybe negative, and then are able to still come out of that to be better, or you know, it's it's happening, and how we respond to have a good result is is something that I really like. And one of the things that I really liked about the pilot in particular uh, for Deep Space Nine is it dealt with a very human response to trauma. Oh yeah, and how to how to move forward from trauma and and ptsd was just as as a therapist i really really liked the episode yeah. oh nog's work was great well, i was like on that. stage when uh avery brooks had to do this scene where his wife is trapped mm. and he can't get her out right and it, it just ripped rips your heart out oh yeah um, he really into it well, yeah, and re-watching that in rewatching his conversation with the prophets, it brought me to tears when they said, you know, you, you, you brought us here because you exist here. And then he, he gets it. It's like, he's never been able to move on. So it was very powerful watching that again. And, and that is, that is PTSD. The most beautiful explanation of it that I've seen in television. It's just, was just perfect. That's exactly what it's like. You are stuck there. And you can't move forward. And no matter what, you keep bringing people back to that time until you're able to really process it. And in that moment, the prophets were almost more like a therapist than prophets. So that was that was really powerful. You know, there was another episode, and there were a bunch of them. But there was another one where Avery Brooks' character plays someone who uh, is really going through something. Um and it was an episode I couldn't believe they let us do. I think it was called Beyond the Farthest Star, the one where uh, he wakes up in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. He's mm-hmm. a writer at a, on a science fiction magazine. That's right. Do uh, you recall that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't believe you even got to make that. It's a wonderful episode. Yeah. Yeah. I just watched that one the other night again. It, it, it just absolutely intriguing yeah. we did a great job putting that together there's the scene where he gets hit by the car ah. and they got a shot looking down and there's the you know we brought in buses and taxi cabs and it's really great yeah you know working on a science fiction show is i've, I've been lucky you know i my, most of my career has been fantasy and science fiction yeah. uh, a couple of times in between jobs i've had to work on the job like i worked on um for a little while on a show called uh uh, good trouble about uh, two gals who moved to LA and you know uh, and it's it's really a good show uh, really well done beautifully art directed and it's just for me it's different because right, it's based right. in you know dressing a law office is not that much fun right, you know? right. <laughs> exactly well Doug before we let you go because I know you're limited in time about three minutes yet before we have to let you go is there anything in particular that you want to just talk about as you think through DS9 and the impact that it had that um, either your role or otherwise that you want to kind of share with us before you go well I mean Deep Space Nine was you know it's really special to me because it's where I made the jump from makeup 
for art department. Right. And uh, it really set the tone uh, for my life and that I never stayed in doing one thing, you know. Right. And I really owe Herman Zimmerman and Mike Okuda, especially Mike Okuda, for taking a chance on me, you know. I mean, they, they, they knew that I knew how to... The bottom line is that you really never know about someone until they come and work for you. Right. And would you rather bring someone in who's already in the union and proven as somebody who works in art department? Or do you take a chance on someone? And, and they are taking a chance. Yeah, okay, I was well-known for makeup, and I, you know, I did good. But that, that does, there's no guarantee right. that I'm going to be able to do that right. until they see me do it. You know? right. So I really owe them a lot for that. A lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we're all friends. We're all still friends. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a super important part of my life. Yeah. Dick Tracy was, you know, everything hinged on Dick Tracy. I wouldn't have ended up on Star Trek. I wouldn't have met Dorothy. Yeah. Uh, Dorothy came and worked with us in the shop. That's awesome. And they made it. Uh, and, and they made a great decision bringing you in. And I'll tell you the same thing I told. Uh, the Okudas when we got to meet them at a con last the other year, Star Trek is, was the first love of my life at DS nine, my favorite series out of all of them. And all you folks who have worked behind the scenes that brought that universe from paper to the screen. I am eternal. I personally am eternally grateful. Oh, you well, guys have you. created that universe and it's, it's a wonderful place. And it's wonderful to hear that, you know, um, listen, as a kid, you know, I was, you know, like 12, 13 years old when the original series came on and that had the same impact on me. Uh, it, I, <laughs> I was crazy. I mean, I, I, I drew it and I wrote it and I made little eight millimeter movies and I, you know, um, I studied up on who everyone was, and you know, I told Bob Justman, you know, that I go, I, I was one of your groupies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how many producers yeah. have somebody who admires them? You know, I mean, I would follow shows because I love them. You know, um, but but I know where you're coming from, and I, and I under when I Matt Jeffries ended up being a good friend of mine. You know, the production designer on the original Star Trek. He was like an uncle. Bob became like an uncle, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I told, I told them basically what you're telling me now, you know, right. and they don't believe me. But, <laughs> that's great. Well, Doug, if people want to find out more about you and your work, is there a, do you have a website that they can go to or is there a place that they can go or do you have a hub? Well, I mean, I, I would say that if you go to my Facebook page and can access where the photos are, the photo albums, I put a lot of stuff in there. You do. Stuff you want. Oh, and also my Vimeo page. Okay. I've got uh, you know, home movies that we made back on Deep Space Nine and, you know. Okay. Awesome. I'm just appreciating watching uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on your monitor over there. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know what that thing is next to you. The what robot. Thing? The robot. Oh, yeah. Well, classic Lost in Space. Yeah, classic Lost in Space. I think I probably there was a remake. I'm sorry. Before your time. <laughs> oh well, the remake is much more serious and logical. Right. The original is goofiest. 
I don't think I ever saw the original. You know, I mean, I would say if you're going to watch it, get ready. It's a kiddie show, you know. Right. Um, But there's some charming charming characters. I mean, uh, Billy Moomy is totally charming, and uh, 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 Jonathan Harris is hysterical, you know. I guess I'll have to watch that. You You don't have to watch it, you know. (laughs) Listen, it's all points to the bottom of the sea. I've been building a sea view. And watching the old show, which I, as a kid, I even at 11 years old, I knew it was ridiculous. But there was some, you know, some charming actors, fantastic art direction. It was science fiction, and there was almost none at the time. And I was watching, I was watching some on YouTube the other day while I was working on this preview. And there's an episode where a guy in a, it's the Mugatu, the Mugatu, <laughs> a private little war with the, the gorilla. A voice to the bottom of the sea without the horn. The whole episode is the gorilla got loose. (laughs) (laughs) Him running from the gorilla or running after the gorilla. And I was like, oh my God, can you imagine that on Star Trek? Kirk and Spock, gorilla loose on the Enterprise. And the whole show is chasing it. That's what the show is like. nostalgia for and some of it is, the CV was gorgeous it is just a, a work of art you know? right. I'm going to post some animations I did of it on uh, on Saturday alright awesome that was fun hey Doug thank Your you artists. so much I know you need to go but hey thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk about DS9 and your work in there that's my pleasure let's chat again sometime absolutely we'd love to have you back on alright thanks a lot alright I'll see you guys yeah, we'll see thanks, you. Night, thanks Doug Oh, that was fantastic, Miles. He was yeah, so fun. yeah, I think we need to do a part two because we never really got into the episode so proper. I don't know if you how you feel about that, but maybe next next time we actually review the episode. But this is great. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, look, the most important part of this. Doug Drexler agrees with me. JJ Trek is crap. <laughs> <laughs> That's like another vote. <laughs> One day, I'll meet Dave Hammers and like, I have a list of all the yeah. people who agree with me. Yeah, but I got a trick god, so I win. Yeah. <laughs> and you are nothing. <laughs> also, your opinion is invalid. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? His opinion is also invalid because of Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> he just ruins everything. Why do people keep giving him things to ruin? <laughs> Uh, oh no! Like no, AJ but, Abrams, you were the reason we can't have nice things. Well, Miles, so AJ we, ruins everything. Yeah, so yep. uh, so we could certainly uh, we could certainly review the uh, Deep Space Nine. We could call it Deep Space Nine Part Two, since we didn't really. Yeah, we'll call I, this, I, saw, I saw you try to. I, I saw, yeah, Miles, I saw you try to steer it back in that direction, and Doug kept derailing things. Oh, the, the train went off the rails. It's okay. So it's, many it was, times. It was, it's okay though because he was great. He gave us a great conversation. I'm not complaining at all. It's just oh, yeah. uh Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I wanted to ask him, you know, what he did on on Battlestar Galactica. Exactly. But I, I, like uh, I didn't want to stick to Deep Space I, Nine. <laughs> right. Miles, embrace the ADHD that is like Whoa. myself, Scott, Dave. I, I'm right. pretty sure all three of us have it. So right. I'm just embrace. And then when we get these creative types on, chances are they have it too. So you oh, just yeah. gotta embrace the ADHD and just go with it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we could have had a night. I mean, 
as you can tell, he, he's had a long storied career. We could have uh, just just talked oh. about his his career, not not necessarily just uh, dedicated to one show. No, absolutely. And, and really, I'll tell you, if, if if you listeners haven't don't haven't looked at the stuff he's put on Facebook, especially like the photos and stuff he was talking about, do oh, check it I out. Am. I am on his Facebook as we speak. <laughs> Some of the stuff he's got is just so cool. I mean, so cool. The projects they've worked on, it's you're actually you're seeing the models that they're working. It's just so cool. That is awesome. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, we could certainly do another show again. I think we should do a second show. I mean, again. I... I- I, I think the pilot's worth talking about. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he was referencing tons of other episodes too that it did. So uh, we can do this. This is our uh, D Space Nine review, uh, part one, and then we'll do one to part two where we actually talk about the pilot and its impact. But, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. So is there, is there anything? Oh my else? gosh, he was so cute when he was young. No. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh, so cute. Oh my! The curly, adorable hair. Oh. Yep, yep. Very good. Well, what, is there anything else we want to talk about before we wrap up the show here? Ah, uh, the Batman trailer. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, 2006 called and wants his hairstyle back. That's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> I'm still not sure how I feel about that. Uh. Well, I, I just, I'm like, can you? Tyler, well, this way. So, uh, uh, Tyler Lloyd, a teacher, a friend of mine, and uh, knows Dave here. Um, the, he said this. This is a. He described it as more like an alternative universe. So they have like you know Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck coming into the Flash universe, and then when Flash re- his theory that when Flash resets everything, that this is the Batman we're left with which is a very vengeful Batman, which is different than the type of Batman that we've seen. Like one of the most disturbing things in that trailer is when he knocks that guy down and then he's like, okay, I'm not done with you. And he just continues to pound that guy. And I'm like, well, this is a uh, new, new Batman. Right? I, I feel like like going back to um, what Doug said earlier is that we're, we're starting to see a lot more like grittier I guess heroes almost where like lines between heroes and villains are getting kind of blurred. And, and so I do think that it starts making us question um, our own sense of, of morality. I know the, the Joker movie definitely blurred that line. Um, I I liked it for, for its, for exploration of, of mental health and, and some sympathetic things, mental health, but at the same time, if you're if you are suffering from mental illness, don't shoot people. That's right. bad. That's bad. <laughs> like, okay, don't 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 do that. If you were having thoughts of hurting others, please seek professional help. Should um, not have done that. Yeah, it's, it's it's there was you know even when you like when I look back at shows like even Battlestar, which he he worked on, offered a ray of hope. You know, in the midst of the greediness and their survival, there was a sense of humans working and trying to re- deal with their their issues and and there a lot of the the newer like the newer star trek certainly and many other newer shows tend to be real grit and i think we're in a time we're in a, at least i feel they put it i'll speak for myself i feel what we just lost chrissy i i feel that we're in a time that um 
that we need brighter vision for our future. We do. Yes, I, I think that we will we'll start seeing that shift. And I, and I do notice that films kind of go in a little bit of, of cycles. Um, so I think we, we were in, I want to say like, bubblier times in like the, the 90s. And it slowly shifted into grit, more gritty, like 2000s. And now we're really getting into the point where you're like, I can't tell if you're the hero or the bad guy. And maybe i don't know like what's going on here and so i i mean i like questioning where the lines are because i think that we should question where the lines are we need to um at at the same time we shouldn't get to the point where we're like wait wait a minute this is this is opposite world and where am i i'm in in alice in wonderland and this is a little bit weird um so i think we have to be careful and you know Movies and media are reflective of society, but they also influence society. So right. I, I think we need to continue the, the conversation. Right, right. I'm hoping yeah. Star Trek Strange New Worlds will bring back some of that optimism and trying to do better um, that, that we know that Star Trek has tried to do before. I, I hope yeah. so, too. I really- that, that was a criticism I had of Picard was them swearing. I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. He made he made a he made a very good point about that. That you know that somehow we can rise above that. That we don't need to be cussing every time something doesn't go our way. So right, mm-hmm. but right, but well, very good. Well, I I, yeah. I think this was a great episode, and, uh, and uh, Miles, thank you so much for inviting Doug to be a part of our uh, Deep Space Nine episode. It was Deep Space Nine; it just wasn't so much the pilot. So uh, we will definitely do the pilot coming down in the future. Um, Where did you like find him, or how? Well, I was aware of his reputation, and he has a presence on social media. Um, oh. Trek God. Yeah, yeah. You're so only saying I just, you're I just only saying out. that because he liked he, he he agreed with you about JJ Trek. Well, <laughs> I, I, I say no, that, that just he, gives he the reputation this. more legitimacy. Yeah. I, I I definitely like that he was just like, yeah, I just called up these people and like I got the jobs, and I'm like, oh, I guess that might be why you're responsive to random people messaging you and be like, come on our podcast. He's like, sure. Right. Which, product of a much different time. It yeah. really is. I could not imagine just calling up a random person, which is why I, I applaud Miles because it would never occur to me now. Like, I, of course, yeah. I can't just call these people and <laughs> message them on Facebook. Like, who do I think I am? Like, I have to right. go through like twenty secretaries to maybe get like a message to their secretary. Right. Like Scott and I have learned. <laughs> Scott and I have learned that it's just better just to ask, and the worst that could happen is they say no. That's it. Exactly. And that's well, the- I, I am so glad that he had a, that he's a classy, open guy. Right. Yes. And he's he's also he's been kind. He's been on other podcasts before, so he's I've heard on other podcasts too. So he's he's been kind with his time when it comes to that sort of thing. Well, I'm I'm glad that he is willing to to give his time for for fans. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has been as Miles. That so, has been one of the driving things of our podcast over the years. That you can always ask them, and they can always say no. And uh, but but mm-hmm. but they might say yes. So you know, 
you yeah. know, that's the way we lined up Richard Hatch. You reach out to him on uh, on Facebook, and he said, "Yeah, I'll do it." it. Ended up being a two part episode early on. So that was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was a good interview too. Yeah. From what I remember listening to. Yeah. But, all right, yeah. guys. Well, uh, so uh, folks listening to us, we will do another episode of Deep Space Nine. Our next episode we'll record. It'll be of the pilot. And um, and uh, so we'll get into the nitty gritty of the pilot. And this was consider this more like an overview and an introduction and an interview with people that have worked with DS9. Um, so you can join us then. And if you have any of your own thoughts on the Deep Space Nine pilot, we would love to hear them. So let us know on Facebook or on Twitter, or you can email us at the sci fi diner podcast at gmail.com. I think that's it. Am I missing anything, Miles, Dave, Chrissy, before we uh, jet out here? No, I think we, we covered it. All right, very good. Well, Miles, why don't you take us out of the show? All right. Till next time, good night and good luck. We'll see ya. Wear your mask. <laughs> and go boldly. <laughs> <laughs> Wear your mask. So. Wear your mask. Right. Darn so, it, I would like to stay open. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I'm getting one of the coolest masks that's arriving in the mail in the next couple of days. It's a... Uh, so I know that I, I don't know how many of you read or watched Harry Potter, but I was telling you about this, Dave. But I I'm getting um, the Marauders map on the mask that when you when you get put on the mask, it's black. But when you when it get when it heats up, it actually um, it actually uh, turns into the Marauders map. So oh, cool. Oh, that's cool. Yes, oh, I, Miles is baby Yoda. <laughs> Baby Yoda says hi. Oh wow! So Scott, has your school started yet? Uh, Dave, has our Monday. school started? Yeah. So Monday officially with students. To, we've been having in service days, and so tomorrow we have our huge district day, and then the next day is our building day, and then Friday. Well, I'm not going in, but but this how, means. How you- this means all the teachers are in making my life hell <laughs> and causing me to run around like a banshee with a stupid mask on where I guarantee you I'm going to fall over from a heart attack because I can't breathe in the dang thing. Right. Yeah, it's been a great time. Right, right, right. Dave just likes the fact that That's we're why all br- I'm at least four in today. Yeah. So, like, Dave's just glad, just happy that we're all bringing in our own cleaning supplies to clean a room. Oh, no, no, no. I provided them for you <laughs> and had to fill them and distribute them. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Are, are, are you nervous? Um, who are you asking, Dave or me? I mean, Dave has to clean everything. I mean, he's probably so covered in Lysol, it, nothing can get through. That's true. Nothing. Pretty true. It's like. I mean, are you are you going to spray the freshmen with Lysol as they come through? Because that's what I really think should happen. Well, you I know, told you, I've got enough plastic sheeting down there. I'll set up a decon chamber right inside the door and just spray you with a pump sprayer when you come. Can in. I borrow you for my? So you know that episode? Just do that to all my volunteers. Yes. You know that episode of Enterprise when Archer comes through and they sp- they spray him with all this decontamination de- 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 stuff. Um, oh no! You got to get naked and rub it in. Scott. Right, right. That's how so uh, <laughs> yeah, right. that's what we're doing with students with, with a, a sans the naked part. You know, we're just they're going to walk through and uh, and we're just going to be spraying and with stuff when they walk into the room. But but, but in, in seriousness, 
how are you feeling? So like, so that's a great question. And I, you know, I'm, I've always been the, per- I, I don't get worked up about stuff because there's, there's only so much you can control. And the thing that I can control is my response to it. Um, and I guess I feel like, uh, maybe if I were in a different health spot in my life, I might be more concerned. Um, I'm a little bit concerned that I might bring it home to my family, but I'm not, I'm, but and maybe I'm just a bit naive. I think the me, I think that COVID is definitely an issue and a problem. I think the media has also overhyped it. Um, but that's not say that we shouldn't take precautions and that we shouldn't be concerned. And so I, I, I run the balance. I was, I was telling someone I was talking to, uh, actually a superintendent that stayed with us at our bed and breakfast. Uh, we were talking. I said, it's hard to know whether, uh, we're too concerned. Are we're not concerned enough um, uh, because we just don't, there's a lot of unknowns. And so I guess my philosophy is I'm just going to go in, I'm going to do my life. I'm going to continue to try and, you know, I'm going to adhere to the protocols, but I, I want to, you know, continue. My passion is still to reach kids. I still, I love kids and, you know, and if I can, even though I'm only seeing them twice a week, cause we're in the hybrid model, um, I still, I mean, that's still, it's why I teach. I, I love English, certainly, but but I also love the students. And so it's going to be neat to see the students back in my classroom, even though it's behind mass. And, um, and, uh, and we're still, and there's, there's still some unknowns. Um, you know, and Dave and I, a bunch of people are saying, well, this is short term because there's a good chance in a couple of weeks we're going to be stepping back and being doing everything virtual. So, the limited time I get with my students gives me some chance to establish a relationship that hopefully will drive us when we when we go into the virtual instruction. I, I guess yeah. I'm a little bit I am a little bit nervous. I'm looking at what's going on in the country and some of the schools that have opened and some of the colleges that have opened. And well, I, I, I will say that I, I know one college that has opened that that within the first week of the freshman coming got six cases. So right. that was uh, a little right. disconcerting right. for so me. I, and I look at high school students and their, their wonderful hygiene habits and, and how, <laughs> and how on a natural, and, 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 and how in a natural year when I'm teaching about three weeks in, I can expect to have a cold just because your body's acclimating to everyone else and everyone's bringing their own their own atmosphere in and their own their own their own uh bacteria in and and so i mean it it just it it just wouldn't surprise me if Penn Manor gets cases of covid and and that begins to impact us and we begin to have to make a decision to to step back but dave your well, thoughts and the difference the, the difference is and i'm speaking strictly from a a national national or an international organizationally certified cleaning technician, which I am. The the difference, the big the biggest thing in this to start off with is the fear. Right. That fear is going to it, it can eat you alive. Right. The virus itself, while a problem, while dangerous as it is. It is the same type of physical virus that a cold virus is. So transmitted 
really the same way through breathing, breathing it in, getting it into those membranes in those membrane areas in your body. The difference is with a cold, we're not washing our hands or using hand sanitizer after we touch everything before we put our stuff, you know, put food in our mouths or rub our eyes or anything like that. We're not wearing a mask constantly all day, every day. The protocols we have in place are so over the top in, in my professional opinion, because we have, we're going around sanitizing and cleaning surfaces. I can't tell you how many times a day, right? That's great and all, but as soon as the next person touches, theoretically it's already, it's, it's recontaminated. Right. It Absolutely. has no lasting power whatsoever. Right there. And, and they're finding that it's not as dangerous on, on surfaces as, it, as they originally thought. And it's, and it's certainly not because you work the logic out. A person has to sneeze or cough, pick their nose, whatever. In their, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then touch a surface. Well, to start off with, you don't know who's infected, who's not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're wearing a mask all day long. So you're not, if you're coughing, more than likely, it's going to be into that mask. It's not going to be into your hand. So I would then have to touch a surface that somebody's coughed on. I would have to get that particle on my hand, then not clean my hands at all with the billions of bottles of hand sanitizer across that building and signs telling me to wash my hands and everything. And then shove my fingers in my mouth, in my eyes, up my nose, whatever, after that. But you know those dark high school students are going to do it anyways. But but I, I don't know that they will. I mean, I shouldn't say I don't know that they will as an absolute, but <laughs> the general practices you've seen it before it, it, it is not going to be there. I mean, well, there are masked Nazis through that building. I'm, yeah. If I'm 30 feet away from somebody in an empty building, they're bitching and writing emails how I didn't have a mask on. There's nobody around. It's not any reason here and I'm doing physical labor. Go pound sand. But, <laughs> but that's the mentality I'm working right. in also. Right. So – it, it, we're going to get cases that there's no doubt in my mind. We're going to get cases, but I, I, I can say with almost certainty, they're not going to get it at Penn Manor high school. Right. They'll you get know, it from sitting at home or hanging out with their buddies after there and bring it into my clean house. Right. Damn them. But if only, well, student, I, if I'm, only, I'm if only, just, go ahead. I, I, I was going to say, well, I, I'm glad that in terms of, the 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 fear or that that you you two are, are in a good place and Dave at this point is more annoyed than anything else right um, which, well, you know. which, which is is a good a good spot to be right. emotionally I mean um so it's just the, the therapist and me checking in on you guys no no I, and, I, and I and I and I do appreciate that and uh because I, I don't I get asked that question you know somewhat but uh, it's neat to see the concern that comes out from that and and I think it is. I mean, the reality is it's no more dangerous than like the flu, for example, but then we have this in addition to the flu. And so it, it does complicate it, you know, a little bit. Exactly. A hundred percent true considering 60% of people that were getting it in the, in a study ended up having long-term heart defects and may have those for the rest of their life. So I would not say it's only as dangerous as the flu. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. 
Right. Um, which brings me to my next point. If, if you do feel like you guys are, are getting it, please take some baby aspirin to prevent potential blood clots because that's really the most dangerous part based on the studies that are, that are being shared in the nursing forums. Yeah. At our age, we should be doing that anyways. Well, yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so, so, so really, um, they, they were advising those of us who are on front lines, vitamin D, um, supplements, making sure you get lots of sunlight. And if you, if you think you might have it, just pop a baby aspirin to prevent, cause these people weren't getting hospitalized, but they were still suffering, um, damage from blood clots. So, um, just, just a piece of advice from the nurses that all care and love us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, all it's, right. it's good. It's gonna be more COVID I, information tomorrow. That's for sure. So, all right, I I gotta get going. Yeah, but me too. I, I do love you all. Yeah. And, and the cat, the cat, the cat's good therapy too. Yes. Oh yeah, she is. That's Harley. Yeah. All right. That's a big oh. cat, Miles. Yeah. She is. All good right. Night. Uh, we'll so, see you, Chrissy. Uh, September eighth would be the next time we would record. September eighth, we'll, we'll we'll come back. Sounds good, and we can do DSI net. So. All right. Good recording. Yeah, fa- fabulous. All right. Hey, I'll catch you guys later. See you later. Right, bye.